Have you heard about the 2021 Doxology and Theology Conference, April 22nd through the 24th? Now you have. Register at biblicalworship.com. We are talking about everything from theological concepts like Trinitarian worship with Kevin DeYoung and H.P. Charles, to practical concepts like songwriting with Andrew Peterson and Matt Boswell. It's a time of encouragement and refreshment. A conference like this is not for everybody, but we have planned it just for people like you. Join us April 22 to 24. Register before March 31st to receive a sweet box of conference worship swag from Southern Seminary. Register, please, at biblicalworship.com. That's biblicalworship.com. Welcome to the Doxology and Theology podcast presented by the Institute for Biblical Worship at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. That's right. I said the Doxology and Theology podcast, a podcast for worship leaders who know that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. I'm your host, Matthew Westerholm, Associate Professor of Church Music and Worship at Southern Seminary and the Executive Director of the Institute for Biblical Worship. On today's episode, we are dipping into our worship resources to bring you a clip from Matt Papa. Matt is a songwriter and an itinerant worship leader and speaker currently based out of Nashville, Tennessee. In this clip taken from our 2014 Doxology and Theology Conference, Matt Papa calls worship leaders to look and live. We never begin worship, we aim it. What we perceive to be just life happening is not. It's the pulse of worship, the shrapnel of worship, the blast side of worship. Life is just picking up the pieces. All of us, believers, non-believers, are facing some deity. We're all trusting in some savior, some glory has swept us off our feet, and this very moment, like a rabid animal, we are pursuing it. That's what life is. Worship is a rhythm of revelation and response. We see greatness and respond in reverence to that greatness. What permeates your sight dominates your life. The question is, what are you looking at? Numbers 21, God's people find themselves in a little predicament. Their whining has led to their chastening and this chastening was like a nightmare episode of man versus wild. Serpents appear, people start screaming, fainting, dying. I mean, come on, can we, can we think about this story for a second like history and not sort of a felt board Bible story yawn machine? Your mom gets bit, your baby brother gets bit and dies. You get bit. The serpents disappear, the groaning yields to silence. Suddenly, you see in the distance, a mob is forming around a pole. I hear if you look at it, you won't die, one girl says to you with a measure of hope. Curious, determined, desperate, you jog, you run, you join the crowd, you stop, and you lift your eyes. And with every passing second, you feel the healing flow through your veins as you had felt the venom flowing before. You look, and you live. 
this bronze serpent on a pole. Why, have you ever thought about it? Why did God do it this way? Right? Um, he's all powerful, couldn't even just said a word and kind of fixed everything and maybe turned the snakes into cute little puppies or something. All right, why did, why did he do it this way? John 3. As Moses, Jesus said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It was a parable. This historical moment was a parable where God is teaching us what faith is like. He's teaching us what worship is like. And if you'll allow me the freedom, he's teaching us what a worship leader is like. It's Sunday morning. They enter. Immortal souls shaking hands, shooting the breeze, sipping the hot brown nectar of life, having walked this week through a world of slithering sins that so easily entangle, having been bitten, disillusioned, and now they're here. They come, we come, searching for a savior, for glory. The countdown clock ticks, that troubadour prophet arrives onto the stage, shoulders his oddly shaped instrument of choice, and dares to approach the microphone. The hour strikes, the service begins, and the worship leader, that little Moses, takes his pole and he lifts up a hooky chorus. A great production. An inspiring talking moment. A charismatic personality. An idol. A tragedy. Because what should have been the pole became the thing on the pole. See, the, the, the music, the production, the charisma, all these good things, all gifts of God, things that make a great pole became the thing on the pole. And they became the Savior, the glory, and Jesus became the pole. A means to an end. Our end. My friends, um, Preachers, worship leaders, little Moses, staying before you every week are immortal, dying people. Souls thirsting for greatness, for a savior, give it to them. Give them the greatness. Give them the anti-venom of the soul, the exalted, bloody lamb of God. Give them the glory of God in the face of Christ. I, that's what I think about when I walk on the stage. I, I, I think if I, if I don't make him high enough, if I don't make him glorious enough, if I don't lift him high enough, the people in the back are going to die. A worship leader is not someone who comes onto a stage and passively says, stand and sing. A worship leader is someone who... who goes before a group of restless, dying hearts who stands there and who lifts up Jesus as high as he can and screams with every fiber of his being, along with Moses, along with John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not stand and sing, look and live. Let's dig in a bit here. Um, let me ask you, what, who or what is the hero of your worship set? Is it a song? Is it a talk moment? Is it your energy? Is it an emotional moment? Is it an odd response from the audience, I mean uh, congregation, that uh, finally validates you? Is, is it a powerful liturgical tradition you employ? Is it your theological prowess or intellect? 
Or is it Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And if he's not the hero, let's ask ourselves, why isn't he? Perhaps Jesus isn't the hero on our platforms because he's not the hero in our hearts. We've forgotten our need for him personally. We've lost sight of our own desperation, so idols have crept in. Functional saviors, other heroes, so naturally, right, we glorify what we see to be glorious. We display those heroes, those idols on the Sunday morning stage. Our voice, our charisma, our intellect. Or, you know, maybe, maybe for a group like this, you know, uh, maybe I shouldn't ask what, what, what the hero of your worship set is. Because I feel like this is the group, man, you, you guys get it right. I mean, um, this is kind of the, the doctrinally sound group, right? This is kind of the, uh, my uh, gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, insert your favorite uh, Piper-hyphenated phrase you want right there, uh, friends, right? You guys, um, maybe I shouldn't ask you what, what the hero of your worship set is, right? We, I feel like we get it right. Maybe I should ask, what's the hero of the worship set to you? And let's be subjective for a minute. And I know us evangelicals, we have kind of so overcorrected postmodernism that we're kind of scared of everything existential. But when you walk off the stage, what are you thinking about? What are you hoping for? What are you worried about? Actually, one of, the way, one of the best ways to figure out what's stirring on in your soul, what's stirring down there, what you worship, is ask yourself that question, what do I worry about? When you worry, you're taking something, you're beholding something. You're taking something in your, in, in your mind, you're turning it over and over and over and over and over. Are you anxious over whether the, the show went according to plan? Are you asking, man, I hope that, that moment really, really landed? Or I battle with this one, you know, do, do you subconsciously need someone to come say something? Man, that was awesome. Man, great job, man. You're so theological. <laughs> Is your deepest concern, did those precious people see Jesus? I mean, you, those of you here in the room who, who so continually and faithfully and skillfully bid others to look. I want to ask you just for a second here to think about it. You, you call other people to look, to behold, to, to gaze on the glory of the gospel. What are you looking at? Are you, are we fighting to fix our eyes on Jesus? Or have you allowed the eyes of your soul lately to lazily drift downward and fall on this ever so common idol of ministry success? Ministry idolatry, this idol with a religious mask that hides itself behind phrases like having influence, being strategic, making an impact. I could talk all day about this one because I feel the chief of sinners here. Um, I've, uh, I've seen it in my heart. I've been entitled. I've gone to the events and the conferences, and I've seen myself as something a little more than a sinner saved by Jesus Christ, and I've been a jerk to people. 
and I've, uh, I've overworked, I've uh, put a strain on my life and my family, because that's what idolatry does. Disordered loves lead to disordered lives. It wrecks your life, whatever the idol is. And ministry is an easy one to have. We say it this way, you know, have you, have you guys ever noticed how quickly this happens? How, just the heart, it's, it's how quickly you can go, how quickly the heart goes from loving Jesus to loving, loving Jesus. How quickly the heart goes from, from worshiping Jesus to worshiping, worshiping Jesus. You notice that in, in the morning, like you, you're there and you're, you're having a time with God and, and, and it's just, you know, something, something drops into your mailbox and the first thing that I do, that I, that I think some of us here in the room probably do is not to sit and resonate on, on the thing and just to sit in God's presence, but the first thing I say is, I need to write a song about that, I need to tweet about that, I need to write a blog about that, right? We, we, we just have this Martha-ness about us, right? I heard, a, I heard somebody say it well once, you, you need to eat the thing before you tweet the thing. Um, I want to I wanna bring this to a head here with um, an excerpt of a book by C.S. Lewis called The Great Divorce. And, you know, I feel like almost like every uh, evangelical sort of talk has to have a token C.S. Lewis quote. But, you know, I mean, if we're going to have, I don't like trends, but if you're going to have a trend like quoting C.S. Lewis, I'm, I'm okay with that one, all right? Um, this is from his book, The Great Divorce. And if you've heard this excerpt before, I just, just lean in. I, th- I feel like every worship leader and every pastor needs to hear this like once a year. Um, a little context before I read. Uh, the Great Divorce is a story about a group of ghosts who are from purgatory or hell. You kind of don't really know. They, um, they take a bus ride up to the foothills of heaven where they meet spirits who are these great, solid you know, uh, creatures who, who, uh, who are worshipers of the one true God. They meet these spirits who urge the ghost to journey with them upward uh, to the mountains of glory. And uh, what we stumble on here is a conversation that's happening between a ghost who had formerly been a painter and a spirit. And this is what we have. God, said the ghost, glancing around the landscape. God what, asked the spirit. What do you mean, God what? Asked the ghost. In our grammar, God is a noun. Oh, oh, I see. I only meant by gum or something of the sort. I meant, well, all this. It's, I should like to paint this. I shouldn't bother about that just at present if I were you, said the spirit. Isn't one going to be allowed to go on painting? Looking comes first. But I've had my look. I've seen just what I want to do. God, I wish, I wish I'd thought of bringing my things with me. The spirit shook his head, scattering light from his hair as he did. That sort of thing's no good here, he said. What do you mean, asked the ghost. When you painted on earth, at least in your earlier days, it was because you caught glimpses of heaven in the earthly landscape. The success of your painting was that it enabled others to see the glimpses too. But here, you're having the thing itself. It is from here that the messages came. There is no good telling us about this country, for we see it already. In fact, we see it better than you do. 
then there's never going to be any point painting here, said the ghost. I don't say that. When you've grown into a person, there'll be some things which you'll see better than anyone else. One of the things you'll want to do will be to tell us about them, but not yet. At present, your business is to see. Come and see. He is endless. Come and feed. There was a little pause. That will be delightful, said the ghost presently in a dull voice. Come then, said the spirit, offering it his arm. How soon do you think I could begin painting, it asked. The spirit broke into laughter. Don't you see you'll never paint at all if that's all you're thinking about, he said. What do you mean, asked the ghost. Why, if you're only interested in the country for the sake of painting it, you'll never learn to see the country. But that's just how a real artist is interested in the country. No, you're forgetting, said the spirit. That was not how you began. Light itself was your first love. You loved paint only as a means of telling about the light. Oh, that's ages ago, said the ghost. One grows out of that, of course. You haven't seen my later works. One becomes more and more interested in paint for its own sake. One does indeed. I've also had to recover from that. It was all a snare. Ink and catgut and paint were necessary down there, but they are also dangerous stimulants. Every poet, musician, and artist, but for grace, is drawn away from love of the thing he tells to love of the telling, till, down in deep hell, they cannot be interested in God at all, but only in what they say about him. I'm going to repeat that last line. Every poet, musician, and artist, and worship leader, and pastor, but for grace, is drawn away from love of the thing he tells, to love of the telling, till down in deep hell, they cannot be interested in God at all, but only what they say about him. Let me remind you today that being a worship leader will not save you. Being a songwriter will not save you. Being a well-known worship leader or well-known songwriter will not save you. Being at a big church will not save you. Maybe I've given us too much credit by calling us little Moses when we're actually all just a bunch of sinners with a fang-shaped indention in our skin. What are you looking at? We never begin worship, we aim it. If you're not fighting to fix your eyes, aggressively aiming that, that, that worship of your heart and soul at the glory of God in the face of Christ, then perhaps it's drifted down to your work, your influence. You are not what you do. Brendan Manning, uh, reminded of a quote, he said, uh, define yourself radically as one, as a beloved child of God. Every other identity is an illusion. Close by just uh, echoing Lewis one more time. When you've grown into a person, there'll be some things which you see better than anyone else. One of the things you'll want to do will be to tell us about them, but not yet. At present, your business is to see. Come and see. He is endless. Come and see. Come and feed. Look and live. I am 
am so thankful for those truths. If you'd like to hear that again, go to our website, biblicalworship.com, and click podcast. Click around to find the show notes for season one, episode 15, and we are happy to share with you the entire thing. That is what we have for you this time on the Doxology and Theology podcast. Our show is produced by Evan Jarms, engineered by Isaiah Small and Caleb Sherwood, and the music is by our good friends at Murphy DX. Until next time, this is Dr. Matthew Westerholm reminding you that the gospel is so good, it has to be sung. Peace be with you.